Good morning, good morning. Uh, Kyle, we good back there? Good, awesome. Uh, welcome again to Midtown 12 South. My name is Elliot. Um, it's a joy to have you with us. Thank you for bringing the church into this room. We might worship together. Um, we're in the middle of a series uh, exploring the life of Jesus together. We're calling this series, Being Curious in Search of the Real Jesus, a nod to Ted Lasso, uh, that we would be curious and not judgmental. And that would include our approach to Jesus, that we would be curious about him, uh, that we would not make judgments about him before we explore who he says he is in his word. Um, and so we're excited to do that this spring. Uh, we've, we're several weeks in, uh, and today there is another fantastic encounter with Jesus that we get to study and dive into. One of my favorites uh, as we see Jesus encounter a woman by a well. And so if you will, turn with me in your Bibles or on your phones to John chapter 4. If not, it will be on the screens uh, for you uh, to follow along. This is John chapter 4, starting in verse 3. It says, He, that's Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father, Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now skipping down to verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I'm going to dive right in. Jesus um, 
is in this transitional um, journey. He's traveling, we're told in the first verse, verse three, that he's traveling from Judea to Galilee. It says he passes through the area of Israel where the Samaritans primarily lived. Uh, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. We're not diving into that, but this is kind of an enemy territory. There are Israelites kind of by half breed, half blood uh, Jews. And he stops to get water and he knows that it's lunchtime. So he sends his disciples into the city, into the village to get some lunch. And this seemingly happenstance conversation happens between Jesus and this woman. But I want you, before we dive into the conversation, I want you to, we're trying to use our redeemed imaginations to see this scene in our minds, to go there, to not let this just be words on a page, but this to truly be us being curious, encountering Jesus together. Take yourself to the edge of this well for a moment. It's noontime. That's what we're told in verse uh, three, verse four, that it is, uh, or verse six, that it is, it's about the sixth hour, which means it's noon, sixth hour from dawn. It's 12 o'clock. It's blazing hot outside. And normally because of the heat of the day, people do not go to the village well or the area well to get water at noontime. It's blazing hot. You're carrying gallons and gallons of water. You don't want to carry that while it's blazing hot. You go at dawn, you go in the morning when the sun's rising where it's still the cool of the morning. But this woman has decided to come to the well during the heat of the day, during the blazing hot sun scorching down on her. Why? Because she wants to see nobody. She's intentionally avoiding people. She's intentionally coming to the well at a time when no one will see her. And Jesus interrupts all of that. Jesus wants to be one-on-one with this woman. Jesus wants to have an intentional conversation with this woman. He has orchestrated this whole scene to take place at this time, at this hour, because he had to go to this spot to get a one-on-one, deeply intimate conversation with this woman. When verse four tells us that he had to go through Samaria, if you were to put Judea up to Galilee in your Google Maps, you don't have to go that way. It is a way, it's one of the less efficient ways. You can go that way. Who chooses that, by the way, on Google Maps? Like, I'd like to go the long way that you're throwing at me, Google, thank you. Jesus goes that way. And why does it say in verse four, it says he had to go that way, but he didn't. Unless, which is what the Greek is trying to tell us in this word in the New Testament, is he was compelled to go. I've got to go this way. I've got to go to this concert. I've got to go to this party. I've got to go on this trip. I've got to go to this meeting. I'm compelled by my convictions to go. Why? Because Jesus knew he had a daughter at Jacob's well in Samaria. I've got to go. And so he's orchestrated this whole thing to interrupt her attempts to stay isolated, to interrupt her attempts to see no one. He knows it's lunchtime. We got to get there right at noon so that the disciples will have to go and get some lunch so that I can have a conversation with my daughter. And so again, this has all been orchestrated. This has all been set up. Jesus wants to have this conversation. But remember from last week, if you were here, we looked at Jesus and Nicodemus, that Jesus is a master teacher. Nicodemus calls him a rabbi. He is a master teacher. He is a wizard at using metaphors. He is constantly taking realities from the real physical world to explain things about the real spiritual world. And so what Jesus is doing in this section is he's using, last week he did it with wind and new birth, these metaphors that we played with. He's doing it again right here. He wants to talk to her about a spiritual reality and what he's gonna use to talk to her about a spiritual reality is a physical reality called thirst. 
So this water metaphor, this thirsty metaphor, this drinking metaphor, this I'm famished and I need my thirst quenched, Jesus is using that to teach her about spiritual thirst and spiritual desire. That's what's going on. Weaving in and out of that metaphor all throughout this conversation. So three things we're gonna look at. You need to know that I only use an outline when I'm afraid of preaching for two hours, okay? So this outline is gonna keep us on track. Three things. First, we're gonna see the depth of her desire. Second, we're gonna see the depth of her shame. And then we're gonna see the depth of the gospel. Depth of her desire, the depth of her shame, and the depth of the gospel. So first, depth of her desire. Remember, throughout the entire conversation, remember the metaphor. Jesus is not there to get a drink. He's using his need for a drink because he's thirsty. He's physically thirsty. He's using that to teach her about longing and desire. He's using his physical thirst to teach her about spiritual thirst and spiritual desire. He knows with this woman, I'm dealing with a woman, perhaps he's dealing with us, with someone who knows that after all their attempts to satisfy their desires, they're still thirsty. I'm not satisfied with the way that my life is. I'm not satisfied with the way that my world is. I'm not satisfied. Jesus is using physical thirst to talk about that reality. So he sits down, he's physically thirsty, and he says, give me a drink. Jesus, you can imagine his chapped lips, like he's parched. He's just walked for hours on end that morning in the blazing hot sun. He's exhausted. He's physically depleted. And he knows I need her to see me this way, see me so spiritually famished or see me so physically famished, physically in need of something that then when I turn this and talk about spiritual desire, she has a living metaphor right in front of her. Hey, see me, woman, and see how thirsty I am because we're about to talk about you and how thirsty you are on a different level. So he says, give me a drink. And she says back to him, why are you, a Jew, she says, asking me, a woman, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Because Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. We're getting a lot of ancient history there. And then he says to her, this is the turn. If you knew who was sitting here in front of you, you would have asked me for living water. What I asked you to do for me, give me something to satisfy my physical thirst and desires. I'm telling you I can do for you for your spiritual needs and your spiritual desires. Whoa, 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 Jesus. I thought we were just here talking about getting our thirst quenched. I thought we were here because you're just a thirsty man traveling through on your way to Galilee. I thought, but Jesus is not there to talk about physical thirst. Jesus is there to talk about spiritual thirst and he's using his physical thirst to talk to her about her desire. There's a woman who has slept around a lot. She's bounced from husband to husband, hoping that something would quench her thirst. And yet she's still thirsty. What do you do when you have something that you believe would satisfy your desires and your longings? You have this thing, this carrot on a string that you think this promotion, you think this paycheck, you think this partner, you think this romantic endeavor, you think this move, you think this new apartment, you think this new, you think this, this next drink, you think whatever, this next thing will finally satisfy the desires that I have. What do you do when you get that thing and you're still thirsty? What do you do when you want a song to get cut and it gets cut? What do you do when you want a big paycheck and you get a big paycheck? What do you do when you want a romantic partner and you get a romantic partner? 
What do you do when all you want is to be married and that will quiet my soul? What do you do when you get all of those things and you're still thirsty? Does it mean that maybe we're really thirsty for something else? Does it mean that maybe there's a deeper longing going on inside of you than the one that you can name or that you've realized? So let me ask this question. Do you know the desire and the longing that's underneath all of the other surface levels, surface level desires and longings? Do you know what you want more than you want to stop being single? Do you know what you want more than you want a different spouse? Do you, want, do you know what you want more than you want another zero on your paycheck? Do you know what you want more than you want whatever it is that you would say, if I had this, my life would finally be quieted. My life would finally be satisfied and I wouldn't want so much anymore. Do you know what you want more than, deeper than you want all of those things? Psalm 23, verse one, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Translation, the Lord is my shepherd. I don't want anything else. The Lord is my shepherd. I have no more wants. The Lord is my shepherd. I am not thirsty anymore. Meaning what you want and what I want, what we all want beneath and behind all of our other surface level wants, here's what we all want desperately. We all want to stop wanting. We all want a drink that will make my thirst go away at a spiritual and soul level. I'm so thirsty. Will someone just give me a drink that will make me stop wanting so much? I really long for all these stated things, but what I really want behind all that, what I really want beneath all that is I want to stop wanting so much. Is there something that could be water for my soul that would quench my thirst as if I'm not even thirsty anymore? That's our deepest desire. That's what we're all groaning for. I want water that will quench my soul level thirst. I want to stop wanting. That even when I don't get what I say I want, I know that I'm still groaning and longing. Oh, if I just had, if I could just, if this move would just take place, if, if then. But here's what I actually know and I believe you actually know deeper than all of that. Of course you know if you don't get the things you want, you're still gonna want. Do you also know, I believe you do, that even if you got everything you wanted, you would still want. What I really want is to stop wanting. What I really want is to never be thirsty again. And the essence of this passage is that Jesus is inviting this woman to explore all the depths of her stated desires, all of them. Let's follow all of those desires to the bottom. And I want you to see woman at the well that I'm the satisfaction for all those places. I'm the satisfaction for all of your sexual, all of your vocational, all of your monetary, all of your emotional, all of your experimental and all of your spiritual desires. I'm the satisfaction for all of them. How? Because what he's saying to her is I'm the satisfaction for the desire that's beneath all those desires. And I can actually quench the thirst that's driving all of those other desires. You think you just want another partner. You think you want more money. You think you need to hop around to the next thing. You think you know what you want. And Jesus is saying, I want to get to the bottom of that place and quench your thirst at the deepest level because what you want at the deepest level is to stop wanting. And I can quench that place. He's talking about the desire beneath the desire. He's talking about what's been hardwired into our DNA. 
that you and I crave ever so desperately to have our deepest longings satisfied. And so we run from thing to thing. We bounce from thing to thing, pursuit to pursuit, trying to quiet that place in us. But do you know that everything you bounce to and from, everything that we pursue to try to satisfy our desire is actually about satisfying the desire that's deeper in our soul? As has been famously said before, when a man knocks on the door of a brothel, he is looking for God. The Bible says it this way in Proverbs chapter 19. Proverbs chapter 19 says, what a man desires is unfailing love, better to be a poor man than a liar. What a man desires, woman desires, human being desires, what a human desires is unfailing love. And it's better to be poor than it is to lie to yourself about the fact that what you desire in everything you do is unfailing love. You are after unfailing love in everything you do. And it's better to end up poor than it is to bounce around and run around and haste yourself around, believing that the next thing will satisfy you than it is to admit that what you are after in every interaction and every step that you take is unfailing love. When you make a career decision, you're looking for God and unfailing love. When you decide to go for a run, you are looking for God and unfailing love. When you go on a date night, when you go to a concert, when you make a move, when you find a new partner, when you drive across the country on a vacation, everything you do in your life is driven by a desire for God and unfailing love. And here's the cost of not realizing, here's the cost of lying to yourself about the fact that what you're after in everything you do is about finding unfailing love. The cost she shows us, this woman shows us. When we don't admit that there is actually a desire beneath all of our other desires, when we don't admit that we're actually looking to quench our deepest thirst, the swarm of the well shows us what a life is like when we do that, when we refuse to do that admit that this deeper desire exists. She says in verse 15, she says this. <laughs> he just says, I can give you water that will quench your deepest thirst. And then she says this in verse 15. Sir, give me this water. Why? So that I will not have to keep coming here to draw water. Here's what she's saying. I'm so tired of trying to satisfy and quench my thirst with worldly water. I'm still thirsty and I'm so tired and I'm so exhausted and my tank is so empty and I don't want to keep coming to the same well. I don't want to keep drinking from the same addiction. I don't want to keep running to the same things. I'm so tired of that. Will you please give me a water, give me a drink that will satisfy my deepest thirst? I don't want to keep coming. You're physically weary, Jesus, and you're asking me for a drink. I'm spiritually weary. If you're weary enough, if you're exhausted enough, then you might be close to begging for living water. And we see in the next point of this story what happens to someone who has tried to satisfy their desires. We see what happens to someone who is exhausted from trying to satisfy all their desires with all the wrong things. Looking for love in all the wrong places, we see the consequence of that. And that's the next thing that Jesus wants to deal with. We see the depth of her shame. So get this, verse 15, she says this, give me this water, I'm so tired. I would love water that would satisfy my deepest thirst. Verse 15, give me it so I don't have to keep coming. Verse 16, like record scratch moment for this woman, like hard left turn that no one was expecting, including her. Look at what Jesus says in verse 16. Oh, you want living water? Okay, 
I'm about to give you some living water. It's not gonna feel the way that you think it's gonna feel. It's not gonna go down the way that you think it's gonna go down, but I'm here to quench your thirst. And look at what he says in verse 16. Okay, go, call your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. Whoa, Jesus, that's personal. Are you a licensed counselor? Like you cannot, you cannot go there. She did not give you permission to talk about this. I thought we were talking about satisfying quenching spiritual thirst. I thought we were talking about desire and I'm tired of coming to the same well and I want living water. Will you give me living water? Why are you bringing this up? Why are we talking about my checkered past? Why are we talking about all the failure? Why are we talking about all the heartache? Why are we talking about that, Jesus? Well, this apparent sudden change of subject is not accidental for Jesus. Please understand this. Please connect these dots. Jesus is not changing the subject. Please hear this. He says, okay, you want living water? I'm about to give it to you. And if I'm going to give you living water, if I'm going to quench your deepest thirst, we got to keep going. There's places that we have to go talk about. She's just asked him for living water. I'm so thirsty, Jesus. I'm so dissatisfied. I have these longings. And Jesus wants her to know the depth of the satisfaction that he's talking to her about. I'm about to give you living water. Will you follow me? Think about, think about how much shame and disgrace this woman was carrying around. Think, think about this now. Maybe you've got a similar story or you know people that do. Think about the pain and the wounds and the shame of having five husbands and now living with somebody who is not your husband. She can't even come to the town well when everybody else does. She will not be seen by people. Her toxic shame has so gripped her because of her past that she is literally reordering her life around the amount of shame that she is carrying and feeling. Shame has changed her life. She wants to see nobody. She wants to be around nobody. She wants to not be seen or known by anybody in her town. And this is the dark, hazy, toxic power of shame. Because shame always wants to tell me a story about me. Shame always wants to tell me who I am. And this is how it does it. Shame takes what I do or what I've done or what's been done to me. Shame takes those real facts about me. And then it declares to me that because of what I do, because of what I've done, because of what's been done to me, this is now who I am. And that is really hard to combat. It's really, really hard because at the brain neurological level in the place in the brain where shame is activated, the prefrontal cortex, when it is felt, when shame is experienced, there is a direct line access from the prefrontal cortex to your long-term memory. And so do you know that the moment you feel 
any ounce of shame in nanoseconds. Like, you don't have to do this work. Your brain is doing, shame is doing this work for you. Your prefrontal cortex experiences shame and immediately it's accessing a memory about you and from your life to confirm that you should be feeling the shame that you're feeling. So it has the file cabinet of all that you've done, all that you do and all that's been done to you. And shame loves to activate and then seek out a memory that will confirm why you're feeling the way that you're feeling. And guess what evidence it's pulling from the filing cabinet? It's not making stuff up. It's telling you real things that you've done and said and been done to you. And so it's really, really hard in that courtroom to deny the evidence because you were there. You did it. You said it. You thought it. You felt it. It was done to you. And so when the courtroom, when the prosecutor comes out and shame is accessing those memories and going, you should feel this way. This is who you are. Need proof? Let me show you. Can't argue with the facts. Can't argue with exhibit A or Z. Because then the shame spiral hits. Shame, we feel shame. It accesses the memory. It pulls out the memory. And this is happening like you're not even thinking about this. And then it reconfirms the feeling. And then guess what it does after it reconfirms the feeling of shame? Pulls out more memories. Real memories of like what you've actually done. And when the evidence is on the table... When your brain is recalling for you the memories of what you've done and what's been done to you, we literally get caught in a shame spiral. You can't get out of it. And so once I'm caught in a shame spiral and shame has told me who I am, then guess what I start to do? I believe it. And then I live it out. I will live out with my life the very thing that shame is telling me that I am and that I deserve. Shame tells me that because of who I am, I deserve to be all alone. Shame tells me that because of who I am and what I've done, I deserve to be isolated and I deserve to be abandoned. And then I will confirm what it says. You know, you're right. I do deserve to be all alone. I do deserve to be isolated. I do deserve to be abandoned. And we do that in a lot of different ways. We hide, we cover up, we self-isolate. But all those things, shame is writing the tale and then we're confirming shame's story. And the shame cycle, the shame spiral is terrified. This is how it keeps us, keeps us in this dark cave of shame, the shame cave. It tells us who we are and what we've done. We confirm it and it's terrified of bringing any of that into the light because shame is always about being seen. And what shame has told me is true about me, I'm terrified of letting that part of me be seen by anybody. And so it gets darker and darker in the shame cave. Shame is about the fear of being laid bare before somebody, being seen, truly seen by somebody, truly known by somebody. Like at the bottom, in the darkest places of your story, I'm not even talking about the darkest things you've done or thought or have been done to you. I'm talking about the deepest, darkest places that only you can get to, the places where you believe things about yourself and the things that you believe about your world and the things that you believe about Jesus, shame doesn't want anybody to see that place. The unspeakable and indefensible place. Shame refuses to let that place be seen. 
Because to be seen is to be vulnerable. To be seen is to let someone see the nakedness, the true self, to let someone see who we really are. And shame cannot be seen. Why? Because if you saw me at the bottom, if you saw me in the darkness, if you saw my true self, guess what you would confirm for me? That you don't want to be around me either. And so I can't let you see me in that place because you will only confirm to me that I do deserve to be abandoned because you'll leave me too. If I let you see me at my worst, if I let you see all of me, you will prove to me that I am just as unlovable as I think I am. So here's how shame, shame is really about survival. Shame then tells us how to self-protect from that place so we hide, we cover up, and we isolate. Don't ever let yourself be truly seen or truly known. And that's shame's survival mechanism. It's like scar to Simba in Lion King. Didn't think I was going there, did you? But it's like scar to, to Simba in the Lion King after the Mufasa's dead. And what does scar say to Simba? Run away and never come back. That's about survival. Where does scar say that to him? in the moment of his deepest shame. You just killed your father. This is who you are now. How dare you run away and never come back? And then it releases the hyenas to come and devour us. And it keeps us in the dark. Shame will never let itself be seen in order to survive. And so here are some of the ways we stop ourselves in our shame cave from ever being seen and truly known. We deflect. We overinflate, we pretend, we run away, we self-justify, we rage. Rage is an incredible indicator that you are living in shame. We downplay, we minimize, it wasn't that bad, it's not that bad, I'm not that bad, you're not that bad. All these are wonderful ways. They're all, they're all fantastic coping mechanisms to try and stop myself from truly being seen and truly being known. This is why the woman is at the well all alone. This is what's happening in John chapter four. She doesn't want to be seen by anybody. She doesn't want to be known by anybody. I'm sorry, weird man, weird Jewish man at the well. I came here to be alone. I don't want to be seen by you. I don't want to be known by you because shame has written the story about me, told me who I am. I deserve to be here all alone. That's what she's living in. And yet, Jesus goes right to the place in her story that has caused her to live in so much shame. This, this, this is not okay in the modern day. Like, we are not okay with this. That Jesus goes, hey, I know why you're here alone. I know you're terrified of being seen and known and vulnerable and laid bare in relationships. I know the shame cave you're living in. We would go, well, I don't want to offend. And some of that is very kind to people. I'm not, I'm not saying you have what Jesus has to do this. But here's, here's, what, here's what I will say. Jesus is going after the place of her story that is causing her deepest shame. Why? Because he wants to heal her of that place. Is it possible that Jesus wants to speak to you in your place of greatest shame? Is it possible that he's not trying to heal you of your shame by helping you forget about the past? 
Like we tend to think that, oh man, I've done this awful thing. This awful thing's been done to me. I just need time away from it. And that's true, time to heal. But I need time away from it so that I can just forget about it. And then its power and its reach will become less of an issue for me. And maybe what Jesus is saying is that that doesn't work. You're trying to forget about that place, woman at the well. I'm bringing it up. Jesus brings up the place in her story that has caused her the most amount of shame because Jesus isn't trying to help you forget about those places. He wants to heal you by encountering him in those places. Is it possible that Jesus wants to give you living water by healing you of your shame? Because that's what he's doing for this woman. He's quenching her thirst by healing her shame. That's what he's doing. He's quenching her thirst by healing her shame. And this is the last point, the depth of the gospel, that Jesus offers her the only solution to her shame, himself. This is where John, the author, is, is a master storyteller. Most people think that he got the details of this story from the woman, which is really precious to think about. Like this is her telling the story. This is her version of the story. But th- this is where the narrative of what takes place is the punchline. Like this, this is where the storyline, what the details of what happens in this setting, not just the words of Jesus, but the actions of Jesus are the message of Jesus. He's preaching with his life right here. Let me show you. Jesus is dealing with a woman who's full of shame. She's coming to the well all alone. I don't want to be seen. I'm covered in shame. And Jesus, look at what he does for this woman. He asks her for a drink. And then he asks her to explore her shame together. And then he doesn't leave her. He sits with her in her shame. He doesn't use her or leave her. And we can see the effect that this has on the woman, this woman who has been seeking out isolation to confirm the abandonment that she believes she deserves from her shame. Look at how it ends. Verse 29, she runs back into the town. The people who just a few hours ago, she didn't want to see any of them. She runs back into those people, a free woman. What does she say? He told me everything about me. He told me everything I ever did. And she's not marveling at supernatural knowledge. She's not like, I found this psychic. Come to this tarot card reading and you're not gonna believe what he knows about your past. He, she's saying, I didn't experience supernatural knowledge. I experienced supernatural love. He knew everything about me. We went there. We went to the darkest part of the cave and he didn't leave me. He stayed with me, he sat with me, he loved me in real time, in being seen. He laid me bare. He heard me tell the truth about myself. He didn't leave me. Her true self was seen by Jesus and her naked self didn't cause Jesus to leave her. That's what heals her shame. That this message of Jesus by his actions to the woman and to you today is this. For the first time in your life, you can actually be fully known. 
and fully loved at the same time. You can actually meet a man who can know everything about you and not leave you. He will not let you believe the narrative that you have written about yourself in your shame. He will sit with you until you know that you are not as unlovable as you have declared yourself to be. Jesus really does know everything about you and he really doesn't leave you. This is unfailing love. Remember what you're thirsty for? This is the unfailing love that you desire at the bottom. Unfailing love really can quench your thirst. And the place where we experience unfailing love in the most palpable, tangible, powerful way, the place where we experience unfailing love is in the face of our shame. In other words, Jesus can quench your thirst by healing your shame. That's why he brings it up. You want some living water? We got to go to the darkest place, not for me to shame you there, but for me to stay with you there. We're going to go to the bottom of your story and bring out all the things that you are terrified of people knowing about you. And I want all that on the table. I want you to tell the truth about yourself and then look at my eyes and watch me not leave you because of it. That's unfailing love. And Jesus can quench our thirst by healing our shame because, and this is so powerful for our own interpersonal relationships, but Jesus is like light years ahead of us, like on an eternal level, but we can learn from him. He's only able to enter into her shame and and carry it with her and bear it with her because he has none of his own. Like you can't help people that are caught in their own shame cave if you haven't been healed of your own shame. Because guess what you will do to them in their shame cave? You'll confirm it for them. You'll run away. You'll get angry. You'll judge. You'll manipulate. You'll downplay. You'll minimize. You'll justify. And that doesn't heal shame. Jesus isn't full of shame. Because he isn't full of shame, guess what he can do for her? He can publicly bear her shame with her which is what heals her. He's willing to carry it. He's willing to sit with it, even at the cost of being misunderstood by everybody, even at the cost at the expense of bearing the public shame with her and people judging him for it. Look at what, look at what John says at the very end, verse 27. The disciples come back and we get, this, we get the, these inner thoughts of the disciples in verse 27 because what were they doing to Jesus when they came back to the well and saw him with this woman? They were ashamed of him. They were embarrassed. They were judging him. They, they, it says, they, they didn't say this, but they thought this. Look at what it says. What are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing to this woman? Do you know, do you know, do you know what you're sitting with? Like, Jesus, people are going to think that you're like, what are you, what are you doing? And Jesus doesn't hear their inner thoughts and go, oh, gosh, you caught me. I, yeah, 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 you're right. He, like, I was just here telling her how wrong her past sex life is. He stares back at them and stays on the well. You can judge me all you want. I'm bearing her shame with her. I will bear the public shame that you experience. I will bear it up and carry it with you. He publicly bore her shame to liberate her from it. 
What she didn't know and what the disciples didn't know is that while Jesus was publicly sitting with her on the edge of this well to carry her shame with her, was that three years from this moment, he would be hanging naked on crossbeams, publicly bearing the shame of the world. This is the shame of the cross, the public display of shame, and Jesus, in his cry of dereliction that we will meditate on on Good Friday, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Here's what Jesus is doing in that moment. Remember where shame wants to take everybody? Remember the, sh- the narrative the shame tells all of us? You deserve to be abandoned. You deserve to be left all alone. You deserve to have God forsake you. Guess what happened to Jesus? He went to the bottom of the shame well. He went to the cosmic level place of isolation and abandonment and he drank it to the bottom. He bore our shame by becoming it. He publicly bore our shame so that we don't have to. And now he sits by the well that you've been drinking from with you and he asks you to tell the truth about yourself. Not so that he can shame you, but so that he can heal you. He came to love you and not leave you like your past lovers have. The Lord is your shepherd. The Lord is your savior. The Lord is your unfailing lover. You have everything you want. Let's pray. Jesus, we're all thirsty. We're tired of coming to the same wells. And so would you use uh, this encounter with this Samaritan woman to not just teach us about desire and shame, but to heal us? Would you quench our thirst by healing our shame? We pray this morning, Jesus, would you, would you make it so for this little stretch of time, even just this worship service and as we leave this place, that we would get a taste of living water in this time, we pray. Let's call this in your name, Jesus, our unfailing lover. Amen.